Tollis, Littlest, where's uh, the stress? It's very rare that I make a discovery when flipping through the also by this author on a new book and I saw in print uh, Roger Lytolis's book Panic as Man Burns Crumpets which already sounded like a book up my street I had a similar reaction when I saw Roger that you'd written on a pedestal a book about mm. statues but I didn't realise that you co-authored one hit wonder, The Story of Jimmy Glass. So which of those three would you press into someone's hand if they best wanted to know you as a human being? Uh, if they wanted to know me, probably Panic is Man Burns Crumpets, because uh, I mean, that's largely a memoir, you know, the, the Jimmy Glass book is obviously about Jimmy. The Statues book is uh, about statues. The uh, the Crumpets book, it's uh, I mean, it's partly a kind of history of uh, local newspapers since well since 1995 when, when, I, when I started but there's also a large element of memoir as well it's kind of a story of local papers through the experience of, uh, of one journalist the one journalist be, being me so there's a lot about um, you know how I became a journalist uh, what the job's like how it's changed over the years and the ups and downs but it's also kind of my my personal story as well, because, you know, my life is so closely entwined with, with the job. So, yeah, definitely that one tells uh, tells my story. Fab, um, I can't buy any books this year. I, I looked <laughs> at my shelves last year and thought, I can't buy, I can't buy one. I can take them out the library, but I can't physically add ones to the shelves. So it just means that I'll have to ask for the book for Christmas. And I hope many other people do. Um, this seems like a very timely book because I was following this nonsense about the Bristol reporter who is effectively a BBC... I don't know what his status is, but the BBC pay for local journalists now. Do you have any people that you know who have that status? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, I was made redundant about, well, at the end of 2019, mm-hmm. so I'm not quite as in touch with, with the local paper uh, as I was, having worked there for nearly 25 years. But, yeah, I mean, when I was still there, we, we began to employ... A local democracy reporter. The they're, 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 yeah, they're the people funded by, by the BBC. So yeah, I mean, he was basically doing, you know, largely the jobs that any other reporters were doing, except they weren't being paid by the newspaper. As you say, they were being paid by the, the BBC. So I think a lot of newspapers are very keen on this project because it means they're basically employing staff for free. Um, I think they're supposed to do only certain types of job, you know, their job descriptions. Say, like, can I do this, this, that? And the other, but when it comes to kind of you know a deadline approaching, then I think the lines sometimes uh, become a bit blurred. It's such a shame, but you would have seen it coming. I'd hope you would have seen it coming. I don't need to spell out what it is, but mm. since 1995, the way people get their news has changed. So this book is it a monument to tenacity and chasing a story? In, in my case, to be honest, uh, not particularly because I, I was I, I was a feature writer rather than a oh, news okay. reporter. Great. I mean, I do I do kind of pay tribute to you know the colleagues of mine who who did those things who showed a great deal of tenacity. I mean, not only in chasing the, the big stories. And I mean, we do. Get, I'm I'm based up in Cumbria, but we do get a lot of big stories up here, even though it's pretty remote. Um, I'm mentioning big stories that, that colleagues broke. Um, you know, I mean, the, the kind of. Uh, but, but, uh, it's also the kind of everyday tenacity where, you, where you, it's not particularly glamorous stories, but if you're chasing, you know, a council report or something, these are kind of the bread and butter of local papers that, uh, 
you know, that I say they're not going to make national headlines, but they are important, hopefully, to to locals. So yeah, they're the kind of things that I mention on the news side. But on, on for me personally, I, I was I was more featured, so it was uh, more kind of doing hopefully interesting things like while well, interviewing celebrities, interviewing ordinary people with uh, amazing stories. Often doing first person things like uh, I mean, you name it, any kind of you know uh, trying. Like, I was kind of a, the John Noakes of uh, oh, great. of a newspaper or Mike Bushell. Mm, yeah, just just doing all kinds of you know wild things. I mean, uh, I took part in a naked swimming session. That was one of the last jobs I did. I don't think that that's that's why it was. I don't think I got sacked because of that. that was just a coincidence. <laughs> it was one of the last jobs. But you know, I was I was kind of prepared to to do anything that I was asked to do or to come up with ideas myself because I knew that to justify my existence as a feature writer, um, I needed to you know to, to write things that were hopefully interesting. So. I didn't really have any any qualms on on that score. I just wanted to get that plug out the way because Panic as Man Burns Crumpets. As soon as I saw that that book existed, I thought, well, as a listener to the media show on Radio Four, as someone who looks at the Watford Observer most weeks, and as someone who has um, welcomed many local cub reporters into the football library, I felt I should um, ask about that. John Coleman is your mate. We had John in. Um, to talk about Carla, I think about 18 months ago. Uh, since when, um, you've been through the managers a bit. Paul Simpson is now the manager and Callum Guy, your captain, has recovered from ligament damage. Uh, we're talking the day that Carlisle go to Grimsby. Uh, should Carlisle envy what's going on at Grimsby, which essentially is now a functioning football team run like a business? Um, I think, on, in terms of the way the club is run, I mean, Carlisle should probably envy just about any any club at the moment. You know, we've, uh, I mean, we got relegated to to League Two in I think it was about eight or nine years ago now. We've been in, in the playoffs once, lost in the playoffs semi-finals about five years ago. We've had a good start to the season two or three years ago and then slumped. So it's been a pretty barren spell. Um, I mean, I think a lot of blame goes to the owners of the club. They're, you know, they've been there a long time. I mean, well, dynamic isn't exactly the word that, that springs to mind. Um, they just seem, I mean, a lot of fans see, see it as kind of an, an old boys club. They're, they're very resistant to change, and they're happy to, you know, to, to keep their, their positions if that's a priority for them. Um, there's been a lot of interest from interested parties, you know, to, to, with a view to taking over or at least investing. But I think some of those. Um, there's a big debt hanging over the club. Uh, Philippe Day, the owner of Edinburgh Woollen Mill, has a debt of around two and a half million pounds to, to his company, um, which doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So obviously that's a, a bit of a barrier to potential investors. Um, I mean, Paul Simpson coming in was, well, it basically saved the club from from relegation last yes. season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the turnaround was in, was incredible. I mean, last February uh, we lost three nil at home to Swindon, and that sent us into the relegation zone. You know, it's good to drop out of the football league, and I mean things were absolutely desperate. Um, I mean, the, the good thing that came out of that was, you know, they got rid of the manager, brought Paul Simpson in. Um, I think at that point we got something like two points from the previous eight matches. Um, Simpson comes in, they win six of the next seven games, which is, I mean, it's absolutely astonishing turnaround, and that pretty much saved us from from relegation. And so now it's a question of whether, you know, that momentum can uh, can continue this season. I didn't realise that Nigel Pearson was sacked after guiding Carlisle to survival. But that season uh, will be discussed, and Jimmy Glass still discusses it, and will discuss it for several years more. So primarily you're here as the co-author. Well, ghostwriter, co-author, I think you were co-credited. Mm, uh, ghostwriter, yeah. I mean, it's written in, in Jimmy's voice, so I was kind of the, the ghostwriter for him, yeah. Lovely voice as well. Proper mm. South London. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> voice. And it seems like a lovely chap. Uh, Jimmy Glass, One Hit mm. Wonder, great title, uh, which is in the football library, uh, alongside several books about various clubs, including the ones that are, let's call it not London. Uh, but I remember Rod Little wrote a piece in which he said, effectively, if you were a footballer, would you live in London or Cumbria? Um, which after COVID, I think people would rather live in Cumbria. But is it the case that when a footballer is presented, even with Swindon or Carlisle, they go to Swindon because it's a quick nip to London. What kind of footballer does go to play for Carlisle United? Uh, it's a good question. I remember uh, we had uh, Stan Bowles was up here for, I think it was only one season in the early 70s. Um, he came up from, from Crew to Carlisle, then he went from, from Carlisle to QPR, and of course things really took off for him. You know, he basically did, he said Carlisle was good for his career because, you know, he, when, I think when he was at Crew, he was based in Manchester. Um, but when he was at Carlisle, he said there was basically nothing else to do except, um, you know, do what he was supposed to do, you know, train and play football, uh, which may be why, why his career took off. You know, he said it kind of in, in the winter it was just oh my god it's so bleak it's so awful but you know without really any down to the distractions that there were in, in Manchester or later in, in London so um, you know while Stan didn't particularly enjoy you know the, the nightlife what there was of it of Carlisle it certainly helped his career um, I mean I think we get a lot of players from Scotland it's not uh, that far it's only it's, well it's, it's 100 miles from Glasgow or Edinburgh uh, 60 miles from Newcastle you know 100 odd miles from Manchester so there is still a big, you know, quite a big area where, you know, Carlisle might not appear to be too horrifically far away. But uh, um, yeah, we, do, we, do, we do get quite a few players from London, but um, if looking at the ones who come up for you, you know, to stay for a good a good stint, it does tend to be the ones who are, who are already based in the north. So I can imagine it being a bit a bit of a culture shock for a Londoner to come up here because it's certainly not, uh, it's not the West End. I can't remember. No, it isn't. Although I'm sure there's a lovely high street in Carlisle. Oh, um, nice. And it's not far from the lakes. So if you want to go and relax in the summer, um, that yeah. is the place to be. Um, Omari Patrick, who is the godson of Linford Christie and the son of Adrian Patrick, who was a successful uh, Commonwealth and national runner for Britain in the 1990s. What's Omari doing up there? And has he found his level? Uh, I, think, I think he could play at a higher level. I think he's had one or two nickels you know, with injury. I mean, if he missed a bit of pre-season... He's potentially a really, really good player. I mean, he's very quick, as you might expect, uh, you know, with uh, that kind of heritage. I mean, he's um, he's very, very skillful as well. So when he's, I mean, when Simpson came in towards the end of last season, he went on a real run. He was uh, he created so many goals. He was creating just goals in just about every game. You know, a really skillful left-sided player, just skipping past people, getting crosses in, scoring a few as well. So yeah, I think he could certainly play at League One and maybe even higher. So. Uh, um, we're very happy to have him here and just hoping he doesn't uh, he stays for a bit longer. Excellent. And of course, League Two is the division where, well, at the top of my head, as well as Grimsby, uh, Forest Green fell out of it. Uh, Northampton, are they League Two? They just missed the air because they missed out, didn't they? And last yeah. day, Bristol Rovers kind of uh, won by about 100 goals and denied Northampton promotion. So yes. yeah, Northampton is still, still there. So these are, oh, Wimbledon. AFC Wimbledon, Wimbledon yeah. are in League That's Two it, this yeah. season, yeah. Yeah. Um, Significantly, um, we're talking on the 16th of August. In a fortnight, it's the Dean Henderson derby um, where Manchester mm. United's under-21s uh, play Carlisle in the Football League trophy. I spoke to John about how he knew very early that Dean was going to be a top keeper. Are you surprised or not surprised that Dean has spoken out uh, in recent days about how United have effectively killed his career by mismanaging him? Um, I think it's what well, I suppose it's, it's quite... 
I mean, speaking as a journalist, it's quite refreshing to hear people speak frankly. We're so used to hear hearing anybody, you know, footballers are kind of trained to death, you know, to, to not say anything controversial. So to hear someone actually speak their mind, you know, whether it'll do them any good or not, I don't know. But it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I do admire it. Um, the events last uh, last weekend haven't done him any harm, have they? We're no. having a good weekend and De Gea, not, not, not such a good one. So, I mean, he's got incredible self-belief. I remember, I think one of his very first league games was was at uh, was for, for Grimsby. He's, he's had a, a spell on loan at Grimsby, so it must be about, uh, I don't know, six or seven years ago. So one of those games was at Carlisle. And uh, Grimsby won, he played really well, and he kind of, you know, without any thought to the club that kind of brought him up, he ran to the Grimsby fans and he was doing wild celebrations, which didn't really endear him to the, the Carlisle fans. But that showed even then he was just incredibly single-minded and didn't really care who he upset. And that sounds as if that's uh, that's continuing. Yeah. I do remember he made a very De Gea-like mistake. He threw one in for England under-21s in a very big game. Um, and it does happen to everyone, but De Gea... Uh, shouldn't happen to him, really. And there's no surprise that he may go into the World Cup not as the Spain number one. And that is a horrible segue into goalkeepers. It is quite incredible that Alisson and this chap who played for QPR, Seni Dieng, uh, have been have scored great goals. Was it this year or last for Alisson? But certainly whenever it happens, and it happened again at the weekend, never so early in the season... But you saw that Dieng was compared to your friend Jimmy. Do you still talk to him? Do you know what he will, would have thought of being called, of giving his name to the keeper scoring a goal? Oh, yeah, I mean, he'd be, he'd be pretty pleased about it. I mean, Jimmy's a real kind of upbeat, bubbly character, you know, and he's, he's, he's quite happy for his, his name to be mentioned. Any kind of context, really, is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if someone was to score a goal that was kind of the equal or better in importance than his, he might be a bit annoyed. But the thing is, I can't, I can't see that happening. I mean, how could he score a more important, amazing goal than the one he scored? So I think he's quite secure about other, other keepers scoring. He's kind of, oh, well, yeah, it's not pretty good. But, you know, did they, you know, save the club's football league existence in the last second of the season? Uh, no, I don't think they did. So carry on. Yeah, and uh, long-time Football Library listeners should really know what happened uh, Scarborough sent down, Carlisle stayed up, Jimmy's third appearance as an emergency goalkeeper signed on loan, um, Carlisle survived, and uh, the pitch inv- two pitch invasions, one at the goal, one at the whistle, uh, did you join in those invasions? I wasn't, I was very well behaved, I was uh, in, in the stand, just, just, I wasn't actually uh, clapping politely, I was going a bit more mad than that, but no, I did stay... I did, I did stay in the stand, but it was, uh, it was an amazing, absolutely amazing occasion. I mean, I can't believe how long ago it was. It was, what, 23 years ago yeah. now? I mean, maybe because it, it was so amazing that the memories are so vivid. It, it, it just, I can just you know, picture it, conjure it all up now, which, make, which is probably why it seems so, so strange. It was, uh, it was so long ago. May the 8th. The 8th of May, the 8th of May. Known as Motorhead Day, but it should be known as Jimmy Glass Day. It is marked because it's a moment in football. Uh, Sky had well not just sky 442 had an interview with him to celebrate the 20th year sky with a documentary that marked 20 years your book got a very nice appearance that was nice yeah it was a pleasant surprise I, was there a spike like, was there a sales spike uh there was actually yeah yeah i mean i checked the the amazon uh, rankings and uh, yeah it would sort of it did fly up for a couple of days there so that, that was nice to see yeah, it really does matter and it, a really well told documentary mm, um, excellent yeah and it, it reminded people that Jimmy Glass was more than just a moment, more than a one-hit wonder. Although someone was wearing a T-shirt saying the best goal of all time. Mm. Well, possibly, possibly. I, mean, I think the most kind of amazing, surreal goal, certainly. I mean, I've often thought, you know, do I just 
and I love this club because I'm a, I'm a Carlisle fan and it was my my team. But when you when you speak to football fans all over the place, you know who. I mean, you know, even abroad, who, who know about it and think it's amazing, and they're certainly not Carlisle fans. So it's, you know, I think yeah, whichever club I supported, I would have recognised it as being an, an amazing, uh, amazing event. I'm just, I'm so glad that I was there because I know Carlisle fans who, who weren't there, you know, they thought Carlisle were going to go out of the mm-hmm. league that day, so they, they didn't go to the match, and now they've been kicking themselves ever since. So yeah, I, I, I was there. In typical Sky fashion, never knowingly undersold, they do exercise some hyperbole. They say that Jimmy Glass saved Carlisle. Did he? I think he probably did, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, he literally saved them from dropping out of the Football League and he quite possibly saved the, the, the club full stop because, you know, they were in a very bad way at the time. Um, they were owned and run by Michael Knighton. Boo. I mean, you know, if, if it drops out of the league, then the, the club was in such a bad way, then it might well have just either dropped straight out of the conference and kept falling or the club might be wound up. Um, as, it, as it turned out, they went out of the league five years later. Um, shortly after Knighton had finally sold up but the club well, I think it was two years after Knighton had sold so the club was in a much better state off the pitch then so they were able to bounce straight back under the management of, of Paul Simpson funnily enough oh. but if, they, yeah, if, they, if they'd gone down under Knighton then yeah I, I don't think they'd been any way back at least not in the, not in the short term hmm. and the precedent now has been set by Stockport who are back in the Football League because they are run very well the manager is that the ceiling for Dave Challoner is very high. There are these clubs that have the fall has been awful. Don't forget Brentford, Brighton, Swansea, all in the lower league. Bournemouth as well. Is Jimmy still player liaison officer there? Uh, as far as I know, yeah, I think he's been doing that for a, for, for a few years now. I mean, I speak to him maybe a couple of times a year. Well, I always send him a text on May the eighth or Saint Jimmy's Day, as it's known. Uh, Saint Jimmy's Day, very good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, um, when I researched Jimmy Glass, he was he came through at Palace in the 1980s. Right. So what was it like going before St. Jimmy's Day and hearing all the stories of coming up at Palace, getting stuck behind Nigel Martin and then becoming effectively a journeyman? Yeah, I mean, it's quite... Well, it's, it's kind of good in a way. Well, it's good for me writing the book, if not for him, because, you know, I was aware that people might think the book's only going to be about the goal. I mean, the goal's an amazing thing, but it might be a bit tricky to write an entire book about it. But it turns out I did have a pretty good backstory. As you say, you know, growing up with the, the likes of uh, Ian Wright and Nigel Martin, and, I mean, I think what surprised me was the things he was saying about, uh, you know, in, in his view, how, how badly run Palace was at the time. I mean, this was... A club in you know kind of a yo-yo club between the old first division, second division, and then you know then in, in the Premier League, and um, just you know how, how poor the training facilities were. I mean, he, he he got injured, wrist injuries, which he put down partly to using kind of knackered old footballs, as he puts it, which which battered his wrists. Um, so you know you'd think that a, a club in the Premier League would would be a bit better equipped than that. I mean, and, and when he started, I think he signed his first. Pro contract, one of his first pro contracts at Palace. This was when they were in the Premier League. Might be in the first season in '92. I think he was on three hundred pounds a week, and you think, wow, you know, this was a Premier League footballer earning three hundred quid a week. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not the kind of thing you expect with the Premier League. But uh, you know, it's, it shows that it's, it's not all not all glamour, obviously, even at that level. Or it certainly wasn't in uh, like in '92. The book was written in 2004, by which time Jimmy had fallen into the grip of an addiction uh, to gambling. Paul Merson had to have his credit card taken away from him. His wife now controls his finances. I don't know if you can answer this, uh, but did it ever get that bad for Jimmy? 
think with Jimmy it was more of a kind of a binge thing. He wasn't kind of doing it, you know, all day, every day. I think it was more, you know, if, if he was kind of in a, in, a, in a bad mood or something had gone wrong or just he would, if his response to that was to try and maybe... I mean, maybe it's kind of trying to recapture the rush of football or something, but he would just kind of, right, I'm going to go to the casino now, and he would just keep gambling until he'd, you know, sometimes he'd have big wins, and then he would, you know, either lose it all straight away or go back next day. And I mean, I, I know this is, it's a, it's a familiar story, but uh, yeah, I think it was more of a, a binge gambler rather than a, mm-hmm. an, all, an all-day event. But, uh, you know, the outcome was was similar in that he lost a great deal of money and uh, got himself in a, in a pretty bad way. Did the PFA come to his aid? Um, I don't think they did, to be honest. I don't, I don't know if he, if he approached them, but um, I don't know, not, not as far as I know. No, mm. no it's, it's wretchedly sad because he gave up football in his mid-twenties and went into uh, sales and driving a cab. Um, mm. Had he just retired by the time you wrote the book with him? Uh, it was quite a difficult time for Jimmy when, when we were doing the book because it took, I mean, it came out in 2004, but we started it in 2001. Um, so obviously we were both doing other things, but on and off, you know, it took about three years to uh, to write it. Um, I mean, at that stage, Jimmy was. Um, I mean, I think he, he saw the goal for his goal is kind of a catalyst for his career. He thought, all right, I'm famous now. Everybody's going to want to employ me, and it didn't didn't quite work out that way. So he, while he was expecting his career to take off, I mean, after after the goal, I think he only played about another dozen football league games. Um, he went back to Swindon, who he'd been on loan to Carlisle from. Um, played a few games and made a bad mistake, never played for them again, went on loan to various clubs, fell down the ladder, went into non-league, which is where he was when we started working on the book. He was playing for Kingstonian at the time. Um, I went to see him there to do some interviews, and I think he like six goals in, so that was not uh, that was kind mm-hmm. of a reflection of where his, his career was at the time. Um, yeah, I think I think it was, a, it was a difficult time for him because he was, he was trying to kind of paint a picture of his career as a whole and talk about how great the goal was. I mean, my kind of career certainly was falling apart and his his life in general was really was really hard because of the you know the gambling and, that, and the pressure that put on his uh, his family and relationships. Mm. You see the footage in this Sky documentary, which is uh, on YouTube and is worth seeing. The fans would have been so ecstatic. I think one gives him a bloody nose because he's so enthusiastic when they clap him off the pitch. It becomes, Jimmy says, an albatross. It's a circus because he's back at Swindon. He can't get in the team. So he's playing for the reserves at a time when fans could watch reserve games and fans are giving him jip behind the goal every time there's a corner. And he's just trying to earn a decent living. Having been signed as an emergency goalkeeper at Carlisle who couldn't keep him on in fourth-tier wages, um, he can't be the only one this has happened to. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine it being, being difficult to do something amazing to, to, to kind of follow that, you know, to, to go, as you say, to go back to a... a, a and, and the fact that he kind of became famous and did something amazing as a, basically as a centre-forward, and then he's got to go back, go back to being at the opposite end of the pitch. Uh, growing up, he, he always struggled with, am I a goalkeeper or am I a striker? And uh, I think he probably enjoyed, you know, being a forward more more than a keeper. Uh, and if he could go, if he could go back, I think he probably would go back as being, you know, to, to be a forward. Because for one thing, I mean, I think the rewards are greater. The, you know, you get less stick. I mean, the old cliche about you know you can miss, you know, ten chances as a striker if you score one, you're okay. Whereas it's the other way around if you're if you're a keeper. Correct. Um, it, it just hit me that he would have started learning how to keep goal in the 80s, where you could pick up pass backs. 1992, the whole game changed. Uh, especially for Leeds and Nottingham Forest, they really were hit. How did he adjust at work um, not being able to pick up back passes 
anymore. Uh, he, he said he, he said it was okay. I mean, I'd, I, you know, he said it was okay. But so, I mean, Jimmy was one of those keepers who enjoyed kind of you know trying to dribble around forwards, which um, you know I don't think his managers enjoyed that as much as much as he did. But I mean, the, the fact that. The risk he scored at Carlisle, you know, I mean, the fact he ran up the pitch in the last minute and scored, I mean, it wasn't a completely isolated incident. I mean, there were times before it became fashionable, as it were, for goalkeepers that he would quite often go up the pitch at set pieces, you know, in the, in the last minute and, and he'd go up for corners. You know, obviously that was the only time that it works when he tried at Carlisle, but there were times when he would dribble around the opposition forward virtually on his goal line and then talked about one game at Bournemouth where I think he ended up just about in, in, in the opposition's half because he ran right up the pitch having dribbled around the, the, you know, the, the opposition striker. I mean, that kind of just shows what his, his personality was. He was mm. kind of an entertainer, you know, and uh, that came to fruition in that one moment at Carlisle, if, uh, if, if nowhere else. I'm genuinely trying to think of a goal as famous and I've come up with the Penenka penalty in the 76 Euros because Penenka had practised and practised and practised would he do that in training? I suppose he would do that in training. They were talking about him. I think it was uh, Paul Brightwell, uh, Ian's brother, who was the captain, mm. talking about how in training, because he was an emergency keeper, he'd just play out wide, he'd play up front. So people knew he was mm. good with his feet at the club. Yeah. I mean, he was generally you know, a very good forward. It wasn't just a fluke that he scored you know, that, that goal so emphatically. I mean, he, you know, when, when he was at Palace, I mean, he spent a lot of his time training you know, as a striker, because I mean, often he was injured. He had, had wrist injuries, as I mentioned. So he would he would very often train as a forward alongside like likes of Ian Wright. So he was in very good company. He could clearly hold his own as, as a forward. Um, I mean, he, he would, since you know retiring from professional football, he's played um, in, for various non-league clubs as a forward and he scored an absolute shed a load of goals. So he, you know, he probably he probably should have played as a forward his, his whole career. You know, I mean. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he would go back and change it, but uh, he was genuinely a very gifted forward. So yeah, the the great finish. We you know we shouldn't we shouldn't have been surprised by it. We have um, even at senior level, Ledley King was converted from a midfielder to a defender. Christian Cavaselli at Watford was a striker, and you can tell he's a converted striker because he's not. He's an international class defender, but he's he's not world class. I remember. Uh, do you remember in the pandemic they made Football Manager free for a week? I downloaded it. Uh, I took control of Watford, saw that this guy Cabaselli was worth £20 million, and I thought, no, no, that's not true. <laughs> and I closed the game, and that was it. I would, <laughs> I would be hamstrung taking control of a lower league club because you have to just work the stats and, and get the best out of the players. So perhaps over the last 20 years, has there been a manager as fine as Paul Simpson in getting the best out of the players and managing upwards and talking to the fans and... Is Paul Simpson the the manager the, of this era that will be uh, talked about in future years? He did a brilliant job at, at Carlisle. You know, when he took over in 2003, the club were in absolute dire straits. You know, they were. I mean, I think initially, I think, I mean, well, he, he did very badly when he, when he took over because you know the club was in such a mess. They had you know hardly any players, and at Christmas they were they had something like five points. In, in a week before Christmas, I mean, yeah, something like I think they'd run one and drawn two in, in, by the middle of December, and then he, he was able to sign a few players, some some experienced players, and he went on an incredible run. So from having five points in, in the middle of December, they went on a run which up promotion form and almost stayed up. You know, that they only went down in the in the second last game, and then it, they went down to the conference then, but he brought them straight back up, and he took them straight back straight back to uh, to League One. 
Um, then he went to Preston, where he's had, he started off very well there. Of course, he won the Youth World Cup for England. Um, he's been manager oh, yeah. and assistant at, yeah, at various clubs. So um, we were pleasantly surprised that he, that he agreed to come back to Carlisle last last February. There's obviously an emotional tie with it being his, his hometown club. You know, this season has got lots of injury problems, but we started off OK. So, I mean, as I said, the transformation last season to go from where we were to winning six of his first seven games is... Uh, you know, astonishing. Is the plan to consolidate this season and push for promotion the next? Uh, I mean, I think some fans are getting a bit excited with, with how things ended last season, but uh, and I think, you know, with, with the budget we've got, uh, I think top half would be would, would be good for most fans, yeah. I mean, considering we haven't been, you know, we've had eight or nine seasons of pretty much mediocrity, then it would be a bit uh, greedy to be demanding promotions all of a sudden, but uh, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think the plan is it's, it's, it's top half, I would say, yeah. And I wish Carlisle so much luck because when I went to Wembley for the first time, it was Watford against Bolton. Uh, we have Nicky Wright Day, May the 31st every year, uh, and Alan Smart, whom I met as well. Um, I met him in the pub opposite Vicarage Road the day of the playoff final in 2013, and I asked him what he remembered of scoring the second goal of that game, uh, and he says, not much, just the noise. Um, and, of course, Wright and Smart both signed by Graham Taylor from Carlisle. Um, so without Carlisle, we wouldn't have had that glorious day in the sun and that first year in the Premier League, which didn't go so well. Do Carlisle look to clubs like Watford or even Bolton and get jealous? Or do they know their place and they'd rather not be amongst 15th to 20th in the Premier League? Uh, I mean, I think it's kind of quite frustrating for, you know, maybe some 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 of the older Colour fans, and I probably have to include myself in that. I mean, you know, it's hard to believe now, but from, from say, the mid-1960s to the mid-80s, you know, Colour were a very, were, you know, very good team. We were in the old second division for most of that time. One season in the, the old first division. Mm-hmm. As, any, as any Cumbrian will tell you, top of the entire football league for three matches after yeah. the first three games of the 74-75 season. Um, the last... 30 years have been pretty, well, God, nearly 40 years now, but been largely mediocre. We went down to the the old third division in 87, haven't, haven't been back to the second tier since then. Um, but we can still remember the days of, you know, playing and often beating the likes of Man City and Newcastle in, in the old second division. Fans who are a bit younger will have no recollection of that, and so they'll see Carlisle's natural home as the fourth, fourth tier or at best a third tier. But, um, you know, some of us can remember the good old days, and, yeah, we feel a bit... We still see the likes of uh, you know, Watford and Bolton as probably as our clubs on a similar level to us, despite the last 40 years telling a rather different story, sadly. The the big one, not just AFC Wimbledon, who are obviously fan-owned, but Accrington, how Andy Holt has come in. And it just every week he's banging his head against a wall because he can't believe how the EFL are running this game. Uh, not brilliantly. They have overshot just because they're managed so well off the pitch. If Carlisle do get it right off the pitch, you could be a, a stable third-tier club like Accrington, and, and you're only there because you aren't as big spenders as even Rotherham and Wickham, who have got all the payments from tumbling down from the championship. There seems to be a natural order ossifying, even in the lower leagues. Um, so I worry if Carlisle will just accept its fate, and for the next 50 years you're content to go to, no disrespect to Grimsby, Wimbledon, um, the other smallish clubs in the north west 
Yeah, and I mean, I've always seen our natural level has been kind of a, a good third-tier side. You know, if you look, if you look at a club's, you know, kind of history and fan base and facilities and all that, I've always thought, you know, we should be kind of good third-tier, maybe pushing for promotion to, to, to the second-tier. As I say, we, we were there for, for a long time, but sadly a lot a long time ago. Um, I think... Uh, you know, the worry is that the, the, the owners of the club are quite happy for us to be in the fourth tier, never mind third tier. You know, there, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of urgency to get the club back where the fans think it should be. But if you look at the potential, I mean, whenever we have, I know we can say this about a lot of clubs, but when if we get a bit of success and you know, we get crowds up towards 10,000, which you wouldn't, you know, there aren't many fourth tier clubs that can say that. You know, we'd, yeah. Um, so yeah, but the potential is the potential is there. But it's just, I, I suppose, the, the danger is we've had. As I say, nearly 40 years now since we've been as high as a second tier. So you've got, you know, probably several generations of fans growing up having known only mediocrity. So they've gone on. I mean, it's always a struggle for fans of smaller clubs, but you've got generations who have never known, you know, a really successful Carlisle team. So they've gone on to either just lose interest in football altogether or support, you know, Liverpool, Man U, Man City, whoever. So it's getting those fans back or, you know, attracting attracting the, the current generations, which being a mediocre fourth to your side it's uh, it's hard to do that and the man who is in the know is john coleman at the news and star uh, and you can hear his visits to the football library where we talk about carlisle uh, at a larger length but just before i let you go i have to praise you for the timing of this book which again uh, fell just after my cutoff where i said i cannot buy any more books so it's as soon as I see it in a library, I will make sure that I read on a pedestal, which um, you seem to... Were you able to visit these statues if you were writing in 2020 or did you start it before the lockdown, this book? Yeah, I, I, the, the timing for me was, was really good. Um, I, you know, it was kind of between lockdown. So uh, the first few months I was just doing research. I was um, interviewing people on the phone and then... Uh, I think it was March or April 2021, lockdown ended and I was able to get out and about, travel around the country. I went all over the place, really. I was in, you know, London, Liverpool, Glasgow, Edinburgh, various other towns and cities writing about particular statues. So, yeah, the timing was uh, was pretty good. I always say to people with that book, you know, it's a book about statues, but it's more interesting than it might sound because I know people aren't necessarily fascinated by, by statues. So it's more of a kind of history book slash travelogue so it's uh yeah it's not not quite as dull as you might uh, <laughs> as you might think how's that how's that for a for a <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Point, yeah. You know? and that, that's my book as well <laughs> i've written this book about the fa youth cup no 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 wait it's not as dull as you think it is that, that would be a good yeah. tagline cumbria mm. not as dull as you think it is yeah <laughs> we'll have that bad. um did you see the colston statue I didn't know. I mean, it was gone by then. I think it was between having been pulled down and being put in the museum. So it was kind of hidden away at that that point. And then what was your reaction when you saw the angry men guarding the Churchill statue? Yeah, it was an interesting one, yeah. I mean, it's just strange. It just kind of shows the importance of them as symbols, doesn't it? I mean, it is basically, you know, a lump of metal, but obviously it's... uh... It becomes something else, isn't it? They become important to people because of what they symbolise. In all seriousness, have Carlisle thought about putting a Jimmy Glass statue up? Uh, well, they do. It's kind of there's a very mini statue of Jimmy. Where he, his, uh, his boots, the boot with which he scored the famous goal, was uh, cast in bronze. Yeah. And uh, there's kind of a there's an underpass leading to Carlisle Castle with various artefacts from the city's history displayed and. Uh, 
Jimmy's boot is, uh, is there. So, yeah, he's, he's kind of been immortalised in bronze. That is magnificent. And I'd, I'd love to get to the lakes uh, in the next few years. I've never been, which is embarrassing. It's just I'm in London and don't have a car. So I'd have to hire um, so I will definitely go and see it. Uh, I'd also recommend to you, there is a piece on the Football Paradise website, which I wrote in 2020, about football statues. Because I just thought, I don't remember seeing a piece about football statues. And we see every year, oh, here's another statue. It looks like Claire Balding. All statues <laughs> look like Claire Balding. She's got a chiselled face. Um, but at Wembley, I would stand in front of the Bobby Moore statue. Uh, Graham Taylor is now in front of uh, the Vicarage Road Club shop, so fans can sit next to Graham. Do you have a favourite football statue? Well, there's a chapter in the book actually, in uh, on a pedestal, a chapter about sporting statues, and there's quite a lot of uh, I mentioned quite a lot of football statues in there. Um, I quite like the the infamous one of um, was it Ted Bates at Southampton? You know, the one that was really wasn't a great likeness, and it was taken down after after a week. <laughs> I mean, if, if you look online for Ted Bates statue, there's, there's there's a kind of the new statue which is very good and looks like Ted Bates, and there's the one that was taken down after a week because it didn't look like him, and it's uh, it, it's worth a look. Don't don't have nightmares. Like the Cristiano Ronaldo statue, which followed, it was lampooned as a poor likeness and was replaced. So I'm glad I spotted that one. Um, yeah. But it's just it's not great. Just for the family as well. Um, I, I saw a show last year about Amy Winehouse. And um, the statue of Amy is taller than her parents, which seems a bit, when they were unveiling it, which the the author of the piece said it was a bit iffy. This book on a pedestal, which uh, was your second, your memoir, if we can call it that. Don't worry, it's about local journalism, but it's not as bad as you think it is. Uh, Panic as man burns crumpets. Now, uh, I should ask, did that really happen? Uh, Well, that wasn't my story, but there was a story, yeah. Basically, we're looking for a title and the publisher wanted a... A kind of archetypal, um, wacky local paper headline. <laughs> so, you know, there are various websites that list these things. So I went through them all, sent them a list of, of, of uh, headlines, and that was the one that we agreed was kind of eye-catching and silly enough to, to work, and people do seem to like it. God knows yeah. we need local journalism um, for, mm. for many reasons. Uh, what next for you? What do you do next? Uh, well, I mean, I'm freelancing. I've been a freelance journalist for the last two and a half years, and I'm um, actually writing a novel at the moment, writing it about uh, a local journalist. So, uh, where do I get my ideas from? Eh? So, yep. yeah, I've been quite busy with that. It's interesting. There's a, there's a book called The Man Who Hated Football, and it's about a sports journalist from Norwich, and it's written by a sports journalist from Norwich. Um, so, <laughs> when's the novel going to be written? When do you, when do you hope to draft it by? Um, end of the year, hopefully. So, excellent. See what see what the situation is next year. And Can't wait to read it. Uh, have a, have you written today? I have. Yeah, I did uh, five hundred words this morning. Good. So, uh... Just like the library. Just like the library. Just like the library.